Welcome to Afternoon Delight. Real people and real stories. A local podcast and local artists. everyone welcome back to afternoon delight this is going to be such an amazing week full of so many moments of hope by the way i want to warn everyone now we're very fortunate that we've got actor emily carding and rob miles both with us from tsmgo however emily's going to be the first of the double bill and i will say now wow i really was surprised by a lot of things um only just because I like to remain impartial on these things and get to know people. Emily's work, wow, where do I begin? They have done such incredible, incredible things over a span of a long uh, career. And what really actually struck with me was how similar we were as people, let alone professionals. Um, I've never been the most massive Shakespeare fan in my whole life, but what I have been a massive fan of is the universal ways in which theatre can bring people together and how very, things like music, for example, are universal. So learning about why they f- were so connected to Shakespeare, as well as the universal elements and the spiritual elements, because let me tell you, Carding has been writing this book that drops in summer that has blown my mind. After our interview, I actually went and spoke to a couple of friends about it um, who love Shakespeare and said that Emily Carding has been writing this incredible idea for um, an actor's guide based on energy. And they kind of just looked at me as if to say, holy shit, yeah, that makes so much sense. And I was so excited by that part because I am a writer, an artist, and... I can't begin to imagine, uh, and Carding themselves talks about it later on, what it would be like to be writing a book for so long and to finally get it out there in the public. Um, quite a nerve-wracking thing. And in a way, I guess, you know, you're you're so bonded in this safe haven of things that you've been putting together that's became your sort of crutch in life. So to put that out there and expose that, it's such a rewarding experience, but also such an intense process. They are an actor who works with Shakespeare. They have done film, television, you name it. They are very multi-talented. We had bonded over the drinks after our TSMGO production of Galatea uh, on Zoom. And it was quite interesting for me because throughout that process, I will share with all of you that there was a lot going on personally. I have been looking at ways in which a... Uh, an artist I worked with had maybe treated me very unfairly as well as our people. I have been dealing with writing a statement, speaking to lawyers, and I was also just dealing with dating drama as per at the time. And I'd said to all of the actors, including Emily, because I really I really wanted Emily to know, because um, I'd been in rehearsal so off with everyone. Um, and not like an intentional off, just more of a, I'm normally very chatty. Michelle, one of the actors actually, and I discussed the fact that at Christmas I was so energetic, so confident, bubbly. During Galatea, I was very much like, I just need to get my lines done and get whatever's going on in the background sorted. So it was so amazing that afterwards we got to all have this conversation about where do we lie in the queer world? You know, I have been going to the street and CCs for drinks now that the venues are open. But one of the things that's came to my attention is that, you know, there's things that I did not notice in the queer community 
um, pre-pandemic that other people might go through, that is the non-binary community and the trans community, speaking to my trans friends in these venues and how misgendered they are regularly. I mean, I was misgendered um, by an organisation and by several people in venues, and I thought, oh my God, what is going on now? And another thing that's been discussed is, you know, bisexuality and pansexuality, and, and where does that lie in the community? So it's been such an, an interesting experience working in Galatea and TSMGO. They do incredible work to have drinks afterwards and speak to people in the queer community about their experiences just really, really was powerful, actually. That sort of reclaiming thing of, this is who I am and we need to be listened to. Um, and I've been loving being at CC's and the street just now having drinks. It's been so needed after the last couple of weeks I've had. Um, so yeah, I can't wait till venues are open and I can DJ and put on nights. And I'm interested to see how other people in the queer community feel about a lot of things. Um, because things are just changing and evolving. And I, I love that. And carding is an example of that. And you're going to find out more about their story now. It is actor, writer, artist, overall incredible human, Emily Carding. Delight with myself, Jory Delight, described as one of the UK's leading Shakespearean actors by the stage. It is the incredible and so talented Emily Carding. How are you doing? Wow. What an introduction. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm really good. Yeah, do you know what? Like, I was quite starstruck um, when you kind of said you were like happy to come on. I was really excited. Um, obviously, a little bit of backstory. We've done Galatea together for the show Must Go Online. Um, even during that process, I was very much like, oh gosh, I don't want to like fuck up in front of them. They're so good. So <laughs> it's so lovely um, that you're here and you've just had your vaccine, haven't you? So you're feeling a bit sort of like, not too bad, but. Well, no, not too bad. It was a couple of days. Well, it was, it was Sunday. So I think I'm well through that now. And I just actually feel victorious and, um, and so lucky so lucky so privileged to to have the care that we do have and and to have the vaccine um when so so many people in in other countries are still suffering in the ways that they are so yes yeah, so i'm doing i'm doing okay i'm feeling pretty good about it and it was such a joy to do galatea with you oh yeah it was actually for me it was one of the most fun energized colorful shows actually like I'd said that to you all obviously at the drinks afterwards where we all got a bit merry and that it was such an inspiring sort of show to do where a lot of the cast were either non-binary or trans actors you know that was such a big deal for me I don't know if you felt that way I totally felt that massively so uh, it's such an unusual experience um a fairly unique experience. Like there are, there are, there's, there's a reading group with friends of mine, some of whom are actors and some who are not that I've been in every week, pretty much over over the pandemic. And and within that group, there are one 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 other person who identifies as non-binary. I know, and there's a good understanding of it. And that was the closest, really, just to have one other person in the room who was kind of in that same place and. Um, so to be in a room full of people where we were then the majority, mm. yeah. to have like so many people just, and, and because then it suddenly feels normal and you realize, and when it's, when it's sort of a new exploration 
in a sense of, to me, it feels new because I am, you know, I'm in my 40s. I'm in the latter half of my 40s now, tragically. And um, we didn't, you know, we didn't grow up with this language. It seems to be something that my generation, for some weird reason, has a problem with. And so I know that having spoken to and, and I had conversations with other people who identify within the non-binary um, umbrella who are around my age all feel a little bit impostery. We feel a little bit like imposters mm -hmm. because for so much of our lives, we've just gone along with the gender. We've, society has told us that we are or that partners have told us that we are or, or whatever and all of these societal performative expectations and and so it was it was very significant and very important to me to be in that room and to feel confident in saying yeah I'd like they them pronouns now actually because but, but this is another long there's going to be a lot of long rambling answers because I remember when people start I, I took on gender fluid uh, quite a few years ago when I found that language was like that fits yeah yeah and then so people started asking me what pronouns I preferred I was like oh oh and people started using they them for me I was like oh that's what a, how good of you to ask yeah and not presume and that and and particularly the younger generations within the industry have got so good at that and it feels so respectful. I'm like, well, if I feel that when somebody is asking me that and I say, oh, well, I mean, at that point it was like, well, she, her is okay, but I thank you for asking. I would like they then. Mm. And you're like, well, why am I not just saying, yeah, great, they then, thank you. So I'm still like, well, you know, if you want to do that. <laughs> yeah, I totally, and I totally relate. And I'd said this to you actually at that discussion afterwards, after the show, that that imposter syndrome thing that I, I feel like that at 26, part of this new generation where it's probably, I guess, in some lens of thinking, it's, oh, this is more kind of that generation's mm -hmm. way of thinking and stuff. But I even get like that in the community and go, oh, there's just weird thing, do I fit? And I was doing that National Theatre Scotland talk after um, the show, the next day yes, how was that really good thank you yeah and it was it was so great to be in a room full digitally of artists that were non-binary or trans who were saying you know oh we see you and hear you and I thought wow because mm -hmm. like you're saying with Galatea you know when you're when you're in this industry you know if if people say it in the past I used to go oh right okay yeah I'd rather be they them please but understand if you've made that Whereas now to have people go, oh yeah, you're totally right. And imposter syndrome just so like valid and accurate. And someone I know who's transitioned, who's a trans man had said, you know, oh, I get that even now after years of my transition. And I'm like, wow, right. Okay. You know, you, you just, you just, you get mm. so boggled down in your head with it that you think, oh, other people don't probably get this. And actually we're all kind of going through it, which is just really interesting isn't it and I love before we get onto like sort of your story and you we I love you shared this meme it was like um the David Bowie meme and I just thought that was so funny <laughs> so oh gosh who sent it to me Some, somebody sent it to me and I was like yeah <laughs> I can't, <laughs> can't argue with that I mean I've literally like played Jareth and I've played various versions of Bowie and hope to continue to do so 
um, through my career. So it's like, oh, I couldn't be more spot on, actually. And that was very validating as well. The number of people who came onto that meant, yeah, that that is the most you thing I've seen. It was like I had cracked my first non-binary joke the other day, being like, oh, my gender's with Hermes, it's missing, but it is something <laughs> just thought, I'm finally making jokes, I'm part of the gang. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So for my listeners, Emily, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. So um, I am best known for my solo adaptations of Shakespeare um, that I've made with Bright Theatre, um, which is an Edinburgh-based company, actually, run by Colburn Bjort Sigvistotir. She's originally Icelandic. She's based in Edinburgh. Wow. Um, so we've done we've done a lot of work together. So I'm probably best known for those shows. So that would be Richard. The, it was currently titled Richard the Third, a one-woman show. Which, if we reinvent that and continue with that, will be retitled mm. um, to reflect my new uh, pronouns. Um, and that's toured internationally, um, all around England and Scotland, and also Rome, Verona, Prague, Iceland, New York, Slovakia, St. Petersburg, Pakistan. So we, we've had wonderful adventures with that show. And then it's sibling show Hamlet and Experience, um, which... Is, is a little younger that started in 2018 and of course COVID has stopped both of both of these shows but both of these use myself as the main character and the audience as the other roles. Wow. Um, so if, if anybody's sort of seen me sort of in the theatre scene that would be probably what I'm known for but that and I have an MFA in staging Shakespeare which is where I originally met Colbrun and so I, I've worked on so many versions of Shakespeare's plays like over I think I'm on about 23 of the plays and within that multiple versions of many of them like I've I've including very weird adaptations and and so on um so so yes yeah, so Shakespeare is definitely my thing as is magic and the esoteric and the spiritual side of things. I'm also known as a creator of, of tarot decks and I write on esoteric subjects wow. as well. So that's sort of like a brief, is yeah. that brief? Was that brief? It was briefish. <laughs> it was very, it was very um, direct to the point. Very lovely. I think it was a really good way of explaining actually who you are. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by all that and I want to delve much more into it in a minute, but one mm. Want to know since I don't know you that well, even though we work together, is you know, it's let's go back. Where did you grow mm -hmm. up, study, work, live? What happened before you ended up going into the performing world? Right. So I come from a working class background, um, and I realize I don't sound it, and I, I can't explain that really. <laughs> Other than I think I think my dad's side of the family was very working class. And my mum's side was a bit posher, mm -hmm. but, um, and, and she had a sister who went on to become like mega posh, but we lived in a council estate in Stoke-on-Trent. Well, Newcastle-under-Lyme, which is basically Stoke-on-Trent. So the pottery is basically. Um, and, and, and had, you know, very little through my childhood and, and so on. It was a bit of a miserable, lonely childhood. <laughs> um, I was an only child and, uh, 
parent issues that I won't necessarily get into. Mm -hmm. But um, there was no drama at my school like at all, no drama club, no opportunities for that. And yet somehow, and, and it's not in my family at all. Yeah. And somehow I had this, this urge and this need. And I remember asking English teachers for anything, you know, can we have an after school club? Can we have anything? And there was nothing. And, and I was actually weirdly talking about this um, yesterday. I did an interview for, for the stage yesterday um, who were asking me about all this. And I think it, was, it must have been Shakespeare in the English classes in English lit classes, in English, that that woke up that sort of hunger, that need, yep. um, sort of lit that spark, I think. Mm -hmm. Because despite the fact that it wasn't in my background at all, and um, I was the first person directly in my family to, to go off to university and all of these things, you know, it was, Shakespeare just made sense to me. And I didn't understand why the other kids around me didn't get it. I just instantly like loved it. It was strange. Mm -hmm. And I think it was my 15th birthday that I got taken to see Macbeth. It was either my 14th or 15th. Mm -hmm. Very good at time. Mm -hmm. And it was just in the local theatre, which is actually a lovely theatre, the New Vic Theatre in, um, in Newcastle under Lyme, which is the theatre in the round. So it wasn't big names. It wasn't big production values. They just did the play, actors you probably ne you'd never have heard of, just local actors doing this thing. And I just loved it. It just, I can still picture bits of it. <laughs> Lady Macbeth had a terrible wig. I, I, I can remember that, but I just remember there was, so, <laughs> there was so much fire and passion in it and it was so visceral. And the language that just that stayed with me. So I just got this passion for the language and I desperately wanted to do it. At the same time, I'm going to skip forward, forward and back a little bit. I have a daughter now who's diagnosed with um, autism and ADHD. And so then I learned this sort of thing was entirely sort of overlooked in my generation. Yeah. I sort of look back at that time and go, maybe I had ADHD. And then over lockdown, I've been like, oh... So the, this whole um, time blindness thing. So I'm very last minute in everything and always, always have been. I somehow managed to get through. But I was at, uh, once I left school and went to A-level college, I was able then to do some drama. This was like next door to my school, but they had a hall and some teachers. I've since gone back and performed there. They've now got big freaking fancy building with a proper theatre and everything that we never had. It was a hall, <laughs> but at least there were classes, you know. And um, so I was able to do GCSE drama and I did a whole bunch of other courses. And then every year I left it too late to apply to go and do what I wanted. Actually, I wanted to do film directing and a bit of drama. Wow. Because I loved film so much. But every year I left it too late to apply for the places I wanted at the places I wanted to go. So I just kept staying at college and doing more subjects. I studied all kinds of things that I never even took the exams in, like classical studies and radio and journalism, as well as the English and TV and video. And I did one year of A-level theatre studies. And so I was going to be at college for like a fourth year doing the radio and journalism thing and the second year of my theatre studies. I had so little experience compared to everybody else. And a chance meeting in a corridor 
between my art teacher, also doing art, and that was one of the things people thought I would go into, I suppose I have sort of, um, uh, my art teacher and uh, my theatre teacher and me in a corridor, <laughs> and my art teacher going, Emily Carding, are you still here? <laughs> and my theatre teacher being like, oh, you don't have to be, because her partner worked at Bretton Hall, um, which was the drama school that's up in Yorkshire, doesn't exist anymore, but it was it was a grand place. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like the Friday, she made a phone call, I had an audition on the Monday, got in, term started a week later. Wow. So it was crazy, and I obviously had so much less experience. So again, this imposter syndrome, so much less experience than everybody else who was there. Plus there was this weird hippie kid finding themselves their first time away from home. Yeah. I felt completely so grateful to be there and so lost in wonder at this beautiful place because Breton, um, it's sort of this mansion house with like modern buildings built up around it in a nature reserve in the wilds of West Yorkshire, wow. near Wakefield. Beautiful. Um, so I was like completely dazed for at least the first year, not not just because of all of the pot that friends were smoking that I was passively inhaling. It um, <laughs> was just like, it was completely unbelievable to have gone from being in Stoke-on-Trent at college for another year to suddenly being at drama school and wow, surrounded by these amazing people in this amazing place. Um, so quantifiably, I didn't do particularly well um again not handing work in and all of this stuff and just dealing just cutting my head around being there yeah. but le- but learning things I think in my own way worked really hard in the third year because that was when I was told the marks counted that I'd already built up a reputation for not working hard in the first couple of years but what I was also what I was also doing during that time spending a lot of time out in nature sat in trees and finding this sort of magical path, this, this uh, paganism or this uh, finding the spirit in nature, really, finding, my, finding my own self mm-hmm. after what, what had been a sort of a fairly apathetic Catholic upbringing. Wow. Um, but despite the fact that I was definitely the weird one at Breton, 100%, and I, I accept the fact that my feelings of isolation were probably self-imposed since I walked around wearing a dark green cloak and sitting in trees for a lot of the time. <laughs> like, yeah, properly weird. Love it. <laughs> um, I did go on to do bits, bits of work. Um, and I don't think I particularly knew what I was doing then. I don't think I was particularly good then. But I, but I did bits and bobs of things. And I did Cambridge Shakespeare Festival. Um, and I did my stint of the scarer at the London Dungeon and things like that. And then, and and I married this guy that I met at Breton. I'd never even actually dated before then. Um, I wasn't particularly interested. It's interesting. I'd never met anybody that I was interested in. Yeah. Which just get me wondering whether I'm, whether there's anything like gray ace about me or or anything, because I just wasn't fussed. Um, but I, but I, I met this guy when I was like 20 or whatever. He was a musician. We were both damaged. 
four years. We were both the weird ones. Yeah. Got married straight out of university, which is, is, is probably not often a good idea. Um, and, uh, and then I ended up after four or five years after graduating, accidentally pregnant. And, you know, and she's wonderful. Well, um, my child, who is not a child anymore, they are a teenager. Yeah. Um, I will call them my goth spring because they also are of, I was saying, ever shifting gender identity. They are going through some explorations. All right. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, once they came along, I, I left. And this is when, um, well, I didn't so much left because I hadn't really established myself in the industry enough to continue working and for, the, for there to be the support there. Mm -hmm. the, and also I left that husband as well because once there was a child in the picture, that dynamic that had been quite artistic and supportive suddenly became, okay, I go and do nine to five working and you stay home and you do child and housework. And I'm like, oh, hmm, that doesn't seem right. No. And also very much like my parents' dynamic, which never seemed like a good thing to me. Mm -hmm. So that became very unhappy very quickly. And, um, but I, I met somebody else who had, who was aligned more with my magical and spiritual beliefs. Mm -hmm. And then those became my focus in in my work where I was fortunate enough for a few years to be supported by this second marriage um, where they had like a job with money and stuff and suddenly I'm like free to be an artist yep. um, but it was but it was definitely painting and writing and all of this mm-hmm for like 10 years and magical training and you know witchy things mystical things yeah so i have several tarot decks that i created that are published and books and um, essays and anthologies and whatnot and then one day i was lying in bed and i started to get the feelings that my child was getting to 11 and a bit more able to be left with other people and so on and I started to just get this really strong sensation that I needed to go back into theatre and back to Shakespeare and back to acting it just felt really like really strong inside of me and then I kept toying with the idea and one day I was I was in bed but holding my phone at this weird angle because it was the only place I could get a signal I was living in the middle of Cornwall and it's ridiculous and um uh, 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 I don't know what I was doing. It, it, anyway, I dropped my phone. It landed on my face, hit me in the mouth, like in my teeth, which hurt a little. Ouch. I picked it. <laughs> Ouch. Picked up my phone again, and it was on the complete works of Shakespeare. Like the app had opened on the phone. I was like, so the works of Shakespeare just literally hit me in the face. <laughs> I'll take that as a hint. Um, I'll take that as a big, it literally hit me in the face. So I then looked around to see what maybe postgrad courses were available. And there was an MFA at the University of Exeter, which was about an hour's drive from where I was. I was like, that's doable. 
specializing in Shakespeare, it was staging Shakespeare. Again, I was extremely fortunate at that point that I could afford to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a tangent, I'm going to come back to the fact that only it, it, this industry is so difficult if you don't have that privilege. Mm-hmm. Having been thrown out of that situation now, now as a single parent. But, so, yeah, so I did, I did this incredible MFA at the University of Exeter because I thought after that huge gap, I couldn't just go back into acting, especially since I didn't think that I was, really knew what I was doing at that point anyway. I wanted to learn more and retrain so I could come back and be good. Mm. And actually something had happened, whether it's the life experience or the magical training, which has a lot of parallels with theatrical training in terms of voice and being centered in yourself and focusing energy. Or a combina- I think really a combination of all of these things meant that I was coming to this course, which wasn't really an acting course. It was very much, there was perfor- obviously there was performance, but it wasn't teaching you the ins and outs of acting. It was really looking at Shakespeare, how to, how to make works from Shakespeare's raw materials, how to put it on, how to literally staging Shakespeare, the history of it, the cultural adaptations of it, and all of this. But when I first, I mean, I was so nervous when we started to first do performance because it's like it's been like eleven years or whatever. I, have I forgotten? And suddenly I found I was a better actor than I had ever been before. It just was something had come together. And um, the resources that are available there to have access to space, but also access to each other and our, our various talents that we all brought to that room. I was found myself not only doing the course, but also loads of extra stuff just for the joy of making things. We'd be working on like five different things at once. Now, this was a really interesting time in terms of gender. Right, Uh uh-huh. Because I've gone through, I haven't really spoken about that yet, but I've gone through lots of shifts in that sense already without really realizing what that was. Because as a kid, because so much of it's prescripted by society, like who's to say what's for boys and what's for girls and what's a boy and what's a girl anyway, but anyway. Mm -hmm. So I had, people would give me dolls and they would be Batman's girlfriend or whatever. And I would have, and I would have cars and dinosaurs and a bow and arrow because I wanted to be Robin Hood. And the characters that I identified with were the heroic male characters, with maybe some exceptions. Um, I think I had a bit of a crush on Serverland from Lake Seven, but <laughs> this is not think, so- Lake Seven has a lot to answer for. Yeah, there's a lot of leather and dominatrix stuff going on there. Yeah, um, <laughs> Lake Seven and Labyrinth is entirely responsible for everything. <laughs> but but then, I think part of being part of what of being a lonely child and then a lonely person, not having a good connection with my parents and being an only child meant that I wanted to, to please people. But at the same time, I can only ever undeniably be myself. So I feel like when I was in the marriages that I was, that there were aspects of myself that were shut off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And then particularly when I was looking at very Wicca-based um, pagan practices and that magical practice, which is very much focused around polarity, you have, you have the male polarity and you have a female polarity. Mm-hmm. Now, I think what's interesting in further explorations of that, the ultimate aim is to bring those two together within yourself as a kind of alchemy. But at that point in the priestess mode, I was quite femme in my presentation, at least. Yeah. And this was the person that my second husband thought he had. Right. Okay. Then Shakespeare happened again. So he had never met the actor me before. Uh-huh. And then I'm like the, the, the taller, more, I think I'd cut my hair again at that point, the more masculine presenting person in this group of 10, uh, 10 women and one guy who was like of short stature, so not typical casting for the male roles. So I found myself at Exeter, really having a desire to explore the, the traditionally male roles and being cast in those roles a lot. And I was suddenly like, oh, actually, this feels nice. Mm. This fits. Mm-hmm. Not that I feel that I'm male, but that I feel I should have the freedom to be both. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, to the point that then after doing lots of that and finding this power and the liberation in myself, not just from playing those roles, but just from being a performer again and coming into that missing part of myself, this empowerment. Um, it's the point when, when they did Twelfth Night and I got cast as Olivia, I was like, oh, what? Yeah, <laughs> you were like, that's not me. <laughs> How do I do that? And then realised how performative the femininity was and had been. Right, okay. After breaking it with the performativity of the masculinity, which I enjoyed, because I think one of the first male characters I played was this ultra-male light, two pairs of socks, in the pants, led by the penis, ultra-male character called Fernando in a play called Cardenio, which is supposedly Shakespeare's lost play, but it's sort of pieced together from bits of... Right. Bits of other stuff, based on a story of uh, Don Quixote. Um, and I was oh, I just really enjoyed the, the freedom and the power that that afforded me. And then Olivia seemed so confined and constricted. And I wore a corset for that and had to learn to move in this way that would then be perceived as, as feminine. It was a really interesting process. And and through this weaving of Shakespearean characters and through then a close study of all of the texts as well, because there's a strong academic Mm -hmm. part of it. Um, And this is sort of an ongoing exploration as well. You You look at how Shakespeare's characters often comment on their own gender, the meta theatricality of that, and how Shakespeare really does himself, you know, in the 16th and 17th century, comment on how, sh- how gender is performance and how it's a societal construct. Mm-hmm. When you have female characters um, saying, you know, if I was a man, I could do this. The ones that are able to cross-dress suddenly going, oh, men act like this. 
and and then finding liberation in their language and expression that they hadn't had before. Um, so it, it's a really interesting sort of journey. Mm-hmm. So my empowerment through that and a sort of realizing of what genders fitted and how, what exactly gender expression and performativity and identity not, ex- not exactly, because I can't claim to know. I don't think anybody can really fully claim to understand and know all of it. But for myself, starting to explore and understand that. This second um, husband was like, oh, and I mean, he said things that you don't say, but bless him for being like, I'm just being honest. And perhaps saying the stuff that the other people would feel and not say mm-hmm. and have me absolutely not question in any way and I ever want to go back to that when he said I liked you better when you were weaker you're you're too masculine for me now um your confidence offends me wow just take that and wow confidence offends me wow it's interesting and it's that thing isn't it that for conversations like that I am I have been in relationships so similar to you and with guys very similar that the moment when I started to be my authentic self and the power dynamic was maybe changed in their eye not me I don't believe in that sort of I believe in equal of in relationship status but very much oh, the power swift has changed. I don't like this. My fragile male ego will not tolerate this. Okay, well, you are either completely binned off or I'm going to try and get you down to where you were beforehand. And I just, I totally relate and empathize with that completely, actually. It's interesting you talk about gender performative stuff in Shakespeare because I wrote, I'll need to send you and let you read it eventually when Mm. it's there. Um, I wrote an article about that, about how through my own gender identity that Shakespeare very much it's like drag, essentially, you know, if we look at the origins of drag, um, mm-hmm. totally um, relate to that. And doing drag was my way of realising my gender identity of this. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could be very femme, I could be very masked, I could be both. I don't need to be one or the other. This is, this is mm-hmm. a construct. You're totally right and accurate in that. And it's so interesting because going back to sort of the beginning, you know, um, I just didn't realise I had so much in common with you because I come from the exact same family dynamic swapped roles um dad's side was a little bit more posh as it went up and mother's side was completely working class um but totally understand what you're talking about and I come from council myself so totally know what you mean but sort of but sort of picking up from where I left off there in terms of how I've got to here I sort of took that thing that was meant I I don't know how it was meant Mm -hmm. But I remember he also said, I'm sure there are other people out there who find the whole Bowie, Tilda Swinton, androgyny thing interesting, but I, I've never found that attractive. So it's like, Ooh. right, so I'm going to take all of these things that you're throwing at me to, I don't know, to, to push me away, and I'm going to take all of that, and that's going to empower me, and that's, that's, who I, that's who I am now, all of these things that I've been having to hide no, this is absolutely it. Wow. And was scared 
because I'd had a life of privilege for a few years after having had nothing and known what that was like to go back to then having nothing as a single parent this time. And I was scared that all of the international travel and the fun things would stop. And actually my art has facilitated so many incredible adventures because and I think if I had to pick a highlight, it's going right back to the beginning. Although I've had, so, I've had so many extraordinary adventures and I'd love to mention a few of them, especially with Richard III. Mention all of them. <laughs> and all because, of them. This is your chance. Like, you tell me everything. Because that, that show, which grew out of a collaboration at Exeter with Colbrun Bjortsik Vistotti, who I met at Exeter. Yeah. Um, we, we got, well, she, she got us um, a theatre residency at Reykjavik in Iceland to create this show. I played Richard III a little bit at, at Exeter in, in a couple of things, um, particularly in a show that we'd made called Shakespeare in Hell, which um, I sort of co-produced and, and made with her. She did the majority of the work on that, but the, the concept was ours. It was a mashup um, of... Of, of Shakespeare and Dante, mm -hmm. um, where you go on a journey through the different circles of hell and you meet different Shakespearean characters who come together. It was all um, multi-rolling with just five five of us. And um, Richard III was one of the characters that I played in that. And it, it sort of, I really enjoyed this broken, vicious, powerful being. And I, I remember saying to her, like, I'd love to play Richard properly. Yeah. Like, and she took that and had this idea of making this one person show. So we had this, we had the theatre residency in Iceland with this raw material of the play at the beginning of these two weeks thinking, we don't know if it's going to work, but let's see if we can make a thing. Yeah. At the end of that, did a work in progress performance for a, a group of, you know, for an Icelandic audience, you know, English, not necessarily. I mean, English, not nobody's first language there. Went really well honed it a bit and then our very first proper performance of, of this was the most extraordinary time and I look back at it with such wonder because it was the beginning of such extraordinary adventures it was at Prague Fringe so we got accepted at Prague Fringe which was immensely exciting to us then um, first time being in Prague as well just in love with the city but we had this we had this piece, we had this baby that we'd made that was so reliant on the audience. Mm. You know, you make, it's an invitation. It's just, it was just me, minimal, minimal, like props made out of paper, like a crown, some name signs that are given out to the people that you're making the characters, a toy gun, <laughs> minimal, no lighting cues, no sound cues, poor theater. And it's completely, completely dependent its success on, on me, you know, giving that in invitation to join me in that world and them accepting it. And if they don't, you know, it doesn't work really. Mm. And, and so you can't know until your first audience. It was so nerve wracking. And it was in this tiny, tiny space in the back room of the cafe up this street in Prague with like our first audience of maybe seven, seven people. So there was some doubling of, I think I have like 15 characters that I have to cast in it. So there's some doubling of characters and things. And it went, you know, I was like, I got through it without messing up victory. I'm counting this like, this went really well. I got, 
you know, because it's a lot of words. <laughs> you know, it's so emotional. I'm like, I got through it and I didn't fuck it up. And, um, and then there was good feedback from the people who were there. And then the next day, I remember um, Colbert and I sharing a flat in Prague and I woke her up like first thing in the morning having been online and gone, we have got the best review I've ever seen for anything in my life. Incredible review. And because Prague Fringe really works on word of mouth, the next performance that night, that room was just packed full of people. And we just had the most extraordinary time. Um, it's, it's, it's a beautifully run fringe anyway. It's, it's very much geared up so you can't make money, but it's a, a joy. It was a joy to be there. And then, and, and they have, you know, they have awards and stuff, but you don't hear about them until later. And Cole and I were both like, you know, it would finish this off really nicely if we maybe, because it's a very new show, but maybe if we were nominated for an award, that would be really great. Yeah. But, you know, we've had a great time and we, we have a show that works. This is great. We can take this and run with it. And then when the awards were announced... We had won every single one. Wow. And we were like... Incredible. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> I remember that Cole had posted on my Facebook walls. He just went, we just won all of the awards. And I was like, what? <laughs> all of them. <laughs> of them. Um, Incredible. And that was the beginning of this amazing adventure because it meant that then people heard about our show it went to Edinburgh then the same year and won another award. Um, and then people who seen it at Edinburgh went and, because it was so unique in its concept, people talked about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so there are people who know about it who haven't even seen it, but people have gone and spoken to them about it and word has sort of spread. Um, and the, just the extraordinary surprises just constant surprises and because it's audience it's audience participation there's that invitation there for people to do wacky things i mean people there's no scripts given in richard the third um so there's no designated lines for people but if they want to they can ad-lib with me um and i've had some hilarious ad-libbing conversations with people in character there's been times when performers will come and see it and then you get all kinds of things. Like I've had one Lady Anne come and sit on my lap. I had one Lady Anne who was heckling me who I had to kill early. We have these dead stickers, which means you're dead, that's it. Um, early. It's been an amazing adventure. And one of the great surprises with it and one of my fondest memories was the year when I took it to both um, Pakistan and St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. um, Two very different cultures mm -hmm. and different, you know, different countries and very, very different experiences. But going somewhere where you expect the culture to be in opposition to what you're doing, mm -hmm. as a, as especially as a female presenting person playing a male role in in, the, in Pakistan, I expected some hostility. What was it like? And we were treated so beautifully 
it was probably the biggest theatre that I played with that show because it's a show designed for small theatres and then I'm playing in front of 250 people bringing the people who are going to be the characters in a bit closer so having some people on stage and there were people sat on on the steps like every gap was filled the response was enormous and again this incredible glowing review from um the, the dawn which is like the biggest one of the biggest publications there mm-hmm. which was it just blew my mind and then going to st petersburg during a time when um, the political situation with Russia wasn't, like, the greatest. Yeah, well, that's what I was wondering. Was Were you quite intimidated in a way by that? Well, there were people saying, don't go. It's not safe. Like St. Petersburg's perfectly safe. It's quite European in its yeah. philosophy and approach. But nevertheless, it was a time when everything was a little bit tricky. And, and I myself was, I was really, I think I was really tired and burnt out. And it was the end of the year as well. It was winter, it was cold. I was like, oh, do I really want to go? And I remember, I can't turn down an adventure. <laughs> and uh, it, I remember it being very much last minute, like sorting out the visa. And I think something on the organisational side had meant that it had been left quite late. Managed to get the visa sorted out on time and, and got out there. And again, performing to people, many of whom didn't speak English at all, with what is a very text-based show. And yet somehow, through this performance, making this heart connection with people that transcends language, culture, politics, our art brought us together in the most extraordinary way. And I was able to see pieces there as well, which were in Russian that I couldn't tell, I couldn't understand the words necessarily, but I could experience the energy and the art and the emotions of that. Yeah. Um, and I have a similar experience where there's a festival that I would have been going back to um, before lockdown happened um, in Romania. There are places now all around the world where I feel like I have found family, where I've been treated like family because I'm an artist and they value art so much. And I I don't think we have that in, in our, you know, in the UK. No. Um, Every other country that I've been to, I've been just really embraced and really brought into that heart space. To the extent even that when I went to um, Rome and Verona, I was literally brought into a family as, as, who ran that theatre, who was celebrating a, a child within that family's birthday. And, it, you know, it was the kid, it was their parents, the grandparents, the aunties, the uncles, and me. And there's photos of this where they've like got their arms around me, I'm brought into it, we're all singing, you know, happy birthday. So, you know, in Italy, in Romania, these beautiful people who, again, I just feel like an, a, it's found family to me around the world, which is so important to me yep. because I don't have particular close connections with my own family, with my biological family. Yeah. And through lockdown, through this last year, which has been a terrible, stressful time for the world, the silver lining has been the online projects and the online connections, which have been as real and valid as any this world travel performance connection. The, the people that I've met 
with that we've made this extraordinary heart connection and that we can't make wait to actually get together in real life and just just but again extraordinary fan family um and that gives me hope because in the darkest of times art can help us to find the light and guide us guide us through that and helps to find each other and find connection and you know in the overused word these unprecedented times yeah we've never needed art more and yet never has art been so poorly treated wow that is a bigger conversation isn't it like we have genuinely needed it now more than ever yet been treated probably most unfairly in different ways I totally actually agree with you. Um, would you chat to me more about So Potent Art, The Magic of Shakespeare then? Yeah, so I'd previously written a book on um, fairy lore and fa- it's called Fairycraft for the same publisher. Right. And I'd been promising them another book for a while. And um, so on my MFA, my, um, my thesis on my MFA was focused for, for, for actor practice, um, taking the hermetic content, the sort of the occult philosophy of the Elizabethan Renaissance time content of, of Shakespeare's work and translating that into a training system for actors. Yeah. So how could we take that magical content or the philosophical content of that and put it into practice for, for a modern or for a postmodern actor? And and I, I thought, oh, this, because I had to, I, I finished it in a way that wasn't very satisfactory because I was then going through a divorce while I was finishing my MFA, which anybody will tell you getting, doing an MFA is a stressful thing, but doing an MFA whilst going through a divorce and having to find somewhere else to live and all of this with a kid as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I counted as a great achievement that I finished and I got a decent, you know, I got a decent grade. So, but it was, it was, it was, in a sense, not a finished work. Um, but I wanted to turn that into a book. So that was the foundation of it. Wow. But I've taken that and made it into, uh, into a practical, but also academic look and exploration of the different kinds of magic and spiritual being and belief that you'll find throughout Shakespeare. Not... And it's not specifically focused at actors. If anything, it's focused more on your sort of pagan slash new age occult mystic practitioner. But really it's of interest to anybody who is open to that sort of thing and who is interested in Shakespeare. So each chapter looks at, so you've got a bit on the history, but then you've got each chapter looks at a different aspect of uh, mystical or occult belief that you'll find within Shakespeare and then gives you practical exercises which are more postmodern for self-development based on that. So it looks at, say, the alchemical content and where we can see that in the writings, um, the hermetic and the Kabbalistic, so that is looking at the four elements and the planets and how that can inform our understanding of character and... and, um, the, the Kabbalistic journeys are the deeper hidden wisdoms in there, but then also looking at the ghosts and the different kinds of ghosts and what does that mean and how does that deepen our understanding of the play and the character 
Um, and the witches, what are the witches really? And what kind of different kinds of witches do we meet? And what does that mean? And why are they there? So looking at, look, looking at all these sort of deeper, deeper meanings and hidden wisdoms and what we can, maybe how we can apply that practically. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be interesting to artists and, and practitioners, but also to people who are, who are not necessarily, who might just have an interest in this area and, and who have an interest in Shakespeare. It's funny because this actually sounds perfect for me because I am a spiritual person believing in all this and love Shakespeare. So I think uh, I'll definitely be looking at getting this. Where can people get this book? It's out in July, so it's not out yet. And it, it took me about five years to finish the darn thing because I, I just kept being bus so busy with theatre and travelling the world and having all my wonderful adventures and taking on far too much at once. So actually it was lockdown where I was like... Get done. I guess I'll finish that book that's a year late then. Yeah. Those publishers. Um, so, yeah, so it's going to print like now. And um, it will be released in the States in July. And it will get to us probably a month later because all kinds of issues currently with global shipping and whatnot so people who buy it in the states are going to see the physical book before i do <laughs> that's so wild <laughs> i'm going to be like send me pictures of my baby in the world but i can't wait to finally hold it in my hands it's been such a journey and it was hanging over my head for such a long time and there's more that i want to do with it because i really do want to turn this into a system of training for actors I think it would be so interesting because I th I think that what has made, not to sound like an egotistical twat, but what's made me more compelling as an actor, what's made me a better actor than I was, um, is that awareness of energy yep, I and being able to shift the atmosphere in, in a room and manipulate energy in a room and just also just being focused on my own energy yep. and being able to draw it in and, and and, and shift it um, and so I think if people had if, if actors and performers had an awareness uh, and were able to you know work out like any part of yourself that energetic body as well as the emotional and the physical body you become a more complete actor yeah. and that there are systems like people use yoga and a lot of eastern mysticism mm -hmm. and I'm very keen on creating a system which uses the Western mystery tradition as, as its basis rather than cultural appropriation. Yes, 110%. That is such... I'm so glad you've just said that, actually. That's so important. It's funny, actually, just because I'm, I'm loving you talking about this and I could just listen to you talk about this all day because it's something I really, uh, in my spare time, I'm interested in, a side of performance. So I've went, oh, two things I love combined into one. Uh, but the things I noticed when I got really spiritual and started getting crystals, etc., and started meditating regularly, um, it was actually, unfortunately, through a friend's death that I got spirit oh, in touch with myself. Um, and it was really funny. I did this um, sponsored walk up Arthur's seat in Edinburgh and drag. And, oh, wow. And it was a fundraiser for her because she had obviously died. And it was for the Butterfly Trust. And I'd went to the top. And after I'd came down, I just remember from then on there, something in me just shifted and changed. I didn't know what it was. And when um, my bubble started coming to my house, she'd noticed and said to me, something's happened in this house. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, 
when I come in now, it's completely like, I'm feeling it. I feel funny and weird. I was like, all right, cool. And she's like, the energy of this house is so safe. I was like, thanks, mm-hmm. I guess. But I know what you mean with that actual shift, the energy when you put it out into the world really does change. And likewise with performances, I totally see the shift in when, if I was to watch me perform and stuff a year ago, and now on camera or on, if it was on stage, I would not recognize myself or what was going on because it was a shift. So I totally find this really interesting. I really want to read this book now. I'm excited. You must, you must as also an artist and a writer just feel a really fully rounded moment with that actually being done now. And when you have that in front of you, like I would cry. I'd be like, oh my gosh, like... No, it's going to be such closure to finally hold it in my hands after this incredibly long journey and everything that I've been through from the MFA and everything that has informed this this work. It is the summation of of so much. But when when I finally finished and sent it off, the relief, just the weight that was lifted, and and as you say, you know, everybody's like. It must feel wonderful to have finished. I was like, it was, it was more like tears of relief. It was like, God, Done. this weight has, yeah. It's not a straightforward, not a straightforward feeling of, hooray, I finished. It's much more like, this is the work. <laughs> That's brilliant. So you have been doing this for a while, performing, you know, writing, doing your thing, right? What has it been like for you? I'm interested to hear your perspective. What has it been like doing shows like with The Show Must Go Online, for example, online and during the pandemic? What's your experience has been like? Extraordinary. So I was involved in the first one. Um, I remember, um, because I was already connected with Rob on Twitter um, because I had auditioned for something that um, that he was involved with the company and he got the he got the part that I'd auditioned for. So that's kind of following and then sort of following his career, going, oh, we're almost in this like who can play the most Shakespearean roles thing. And sort of, so this is somebody who's really done a lot of stuff. So I was very interested in in his work. And he put a call out on Twitter for um, oh, I'm thinking of doing uh, an online reading group of Shakespeare on. And whether he said on Zoom or whatever, I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds fun because I was so scared of forgetting how to be an actor. I don't know why the, this weird fear of if you don't do it for a bit, you're going to forget. I know, how. I know what you mean completely. It was like drag. I was like, oh, if I don't do it, I'll forget how to like do makeup. Like <laughs> Nonsense, but yeah, nevertheless. And... Um, and the first one, we didn't have a clue, really, what we were doing, but it was a joy. Yeah. Um, again, connection, to connect with people, to come together and just enjoy reading the play. And at that point, like, I lived surrounded by clutter. I don't think I had a clear surface anywhere. There was no advice on setting up or anything. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had my laptop was on cushions on my lap wobbling around I was doing comedy accent playing Lucinda and <laughs> Lucetta yeah oh god whatever she's called and two gents and um oh, we just had a lot of fun and then that that journey from where we started the the moment actually in rehearsal with with um with 
with Lucy, who is playing Julia, and going, to be, right, I need to pass you a letter. Let's both make a letter. And then I'll write to Julia on it, and you write to Julia on it. And then we have two letters, and we can pass it through the screen. Like the excitement of discovering all this for the first time, and the creativity of that, to find creativity in this time of such despair, and to find new friendships was amazing. And then, and then as it went on, it became this incredible new medium in itself that we were exploring and that Rob and, and the crew that he brought together were ex exploring. Um, and I really think it's been the most ex extraordinary silver lining. Mm. Um, the shows themselves, the creativity that's gone into the shows, um, the fun that we had and the friendships that feel, you know, just because it's online doesn't mean it's not real. Mm -hmm. Real, real friendships with real affection and love that have come out of that and more international collaborations. Um, and the legacy of what Rob has, Rob and Sarah and, and Emily Ingram and everybody of Matt Rhodes have brought together in putting the complete works of Shakespeare online for free for everyone actually accessible to people who might not ever really see a Shakespeare play otherwise. Mm. Uh, and also with the talks and the post-show talks, the pre-show talks, what a resource and what a legacy. So I'm, I feel incredibly proud and honored to be a part of that. And um, the, the Hamlet that we did, where um, I got to play Claudius after having, I think I've played Hamlet like, um, well, I mean, I've done I've done complete plays and I've done scenes, but I've played four or five different versions of Hamlet in my time. To, to, to tackle that play from Claudius's perspective, and to tackle those amazing words, and that cast that they brought together for that production of Hamlet was uh, just so special, and that that was an extraordinary time. Yeah. So. Coming back to the Galateo is like, yes, come back and play. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm so glad because I can just see your face lighting up the moment that you're talking about it. So, yeah, it's it's. Oh God, I don't know what I'd have done without it. Honestly, I'd have been a complete, complete mess, a completely different person without it. I think. Totally. I've got obviously Rob next episode after you discussing. You know, the show must. Ah, great. Felt, felt like I had to get you and then him and sort of this all nicely ease into the next one. Um, so, you know, as someone who's been working in the arts for quite a while, um, what sort of advice would you give to maybe younger people pursuing the arts or anyone pursuing the arts at any point, I guess, really, that um, maybe is feeling a bit disheartened right now with the way things are? It's so difficult, isn't it? And I, I wouldn't ever want to imply that it isn't. It's incredibly hard mm -hmm. so you have to love it mm. you have to love your art that you want to make yeah. if you go if you get into this career wanting to be famous or wanting to just do things for other people it will become a hollow and unsatisfying thing i i think very important so and, and if you're sat on your butt waiting for opportunities to come to you, you'll have to be very, very lucky if, if that comes to pass. It, you know, behind every sudden success story, you see there's a hell of a lot of hard work. 
So you have to love it and kindle that love and find the ways to kindle that love however you can. Mm -hmm. Source your own inspiration and your own joy in the way that only you can and make the art that only you can. If you don't know how to make stuff, learn how to make your own work and find collaborators and the joy of collaboration, of coming together and making your own work um, or being being part of something creative like that. Um, wow. It, it, it's really, you have to be, you, ha you sort of have to have many strings to your bow these days, I think. Again, unless you're incredibly privileged and incredibly lucky and you get picked up from your incredibly fancy drama school by an incredibly fancy agent straight away. Yeah. For most of us, you got to do the grind. So make sure that you fucking love the grind. And, and what is it? Why is it? Why are you an artist? What is your art? And make that because nobody else is going to be able to do that. Wow. I love that. It's brilliant. What, what is your, you know, what is your art and why do you do that? It's brilliant. I have like a lot of Oprah moments during these interviews where it just stands out and I comment on it. It's so interesting. I think it's such an important conversation right now, especially for students, because I talked to a lot of students because mm -hmm. I completed my Emmy during the pandemic at the beginning and a lot of them felt very, you know, a lot of them deferred. Our lecturers were like, I wouldn't defer because we don't know how long this will last. And they did. And then they've came back and they very much don't really want to do this anymore. And it's, it's a hard one to navigate. And I think what you've talked about there actually about loving it is so important because there's a lot of people out there, I think, in this industry that I've worked with who... I think it's that Stanislavski quote, isn't it? It's like they love themselves and the art more than the art itself. And I think that's such an important thing to remember is you know if you love it then it will hopefully blossom uh, yeah. it's really important and remember remember who who you're doing it for yeah because otherwise ego can become a problem mm. I, I think so i think it's important if you can frame it as art your art the artist's service you are bringing something to the world to your audience whether your audience is one person in a tiny room at edinburgh fringe or whether your audience is thousands of people it's an act of service for that audience you're taking them on a journey you're telling them a story you are transforming them somehow you are changing their world or you're giving them a feeling or you're giving them a sensation or something you're gifting them yeah totally it's an act of service so always remember remember that um, rather than an, an easy pattern that it is to, to slip into is, is, is feeling as though, you know, things need to come to you. If they're not, if they're not coming to you, then make, just yeah. generate it, make it. Totally. If that makes sense. A more interesting question I have for you that I want to know, right? What mm. is your favourite Shakespeare play? Mm. So I have a particular... I, can't, I can never say one, don't ever make me say one, but I have particular okay. reasons for loving different plays. Okay. So I have a particular affection for The Winter's Tale. All right. Okay. I don't think it's necessarily the objectively best play, and I think it's really difficult to do well. But I have a particular affection for it because it was the first one on the MFA that we got to do on the Globe stage. Mm -hmm. So as part of the MFA, we had two residencies at the Globe, and the first year we did The Winter's Tale. 
and I got to play Leontes in the trial scene. And I'd never seen this play done well before. I hadn't been, I didn't think particularly keen on this play, mm -hmm. but along with performing it and my studies of the, of the magical content of the plays, mm -hmm. realized that this whole mythical line through the Winter's Tale where it's telling the myth of Demeter and Persephone and the Eleusinian mysteries, which is so important to me. So the, this, this whole thing started to be revealed to me. So I fell in love with this play and in the same, I'm going to do that awful name dropping thing now, but that, that same year where I got to perform that at the Globe, I was so interested in the spiritual content of, of Shakespeare and hermetic stuff that I've been Googling like, who else is doing this work? Because I want to talk to them. And discovered that Mark Rylance was also really into this, which I hadn't really been aware of at that point. And that there was a pilgrimage happening in Sicily that year of the mysteries of the Winter's Tale. Wow. Um, but it was like this private closed group thing with a tiny, small, obviously invited group of people because it's not freaking violence, right? Mm. And his spiritual mentor, Peter Dawkins, who had written books more from like a Christian spirituality perspective on the hermetic stuff and more so like things that he sees in it as opposed to maybe what would be easily, more easily found. Yeah. But fast just a fascinating area to explore. So I was like, well, I'll email them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be like, hello, this is me. I've written some books and things about spiritual stuff. And I'm, a, you know, I, I work with the goddess Hecate, who is important in this play because blah, 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 blah. I got put on a waiting list and got a place and got to go to Sicily with Mark Rylance and a small group of other people exploring the mysteries and acting out all of the scenes in the landscape of Sicily of the Winter's Tale, which ended up with me playing Paulina opposite Mark Rylance as, as Leontes in the Winter's Tale. Wow. So that's what, like, I love that play so much because of these precious, precious memories and the significance of that. Yeah. If I could go back to any point in my life to relive these perfectly, like, incredible blissful moments yeah that in the sunshine on the grass in sicily reading shakespeare with mark rylance wow. this first days of that and then yeah. that whole journey yeah that's incredible oh but again but again it was the privilege that i was able at that point to afford it not to be able to afford that now I know. Um, but it was magical it was magical I love but it. in terms of plays that like the sort of like the working the working class kid who grew up in Stoke-on-Trent it's Macbeth because that was the one that was the first one that I saw and I fell in love with and then I thought like and I still will see like every version of it I can because I'm always searching for the perfect version because I, I sort of take bits I'm like yeah that Duncan was really good, or that Macduff was really good. Lady M was okay. <laughs> because the, people do all kinds of, it's one of those plays where people can set it anywhere and do anything with it. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah. So I realise it's sort of like, it's not very hipster or whatever to say. One of, it's one of the most popular places. The reason it's one of the most popular places, it's fun. It has magic. It has sword fights. It has an evil tyrant. It has 
broken nightmare dream sequences and amazing imagery and mm. punchy, punchy scenes. Mm. It has some politics, which is often cut out. It has the goddess Hecate in it. I mean, so that's the one that I've seen the most. And then the one that I've played the most that I will always, always find more in and I just love losing myself in the freaking melancholy of it is Hamlet, just for the pure, like, humanity and tragedy and just the glorious, mm -hmm. endless humanity and the vulnerability it demands of you as a performer. Mm -hmm. I can never list just one. I can't even do three because... I love The Tempest so much because it's so magical as well. It's just funny. I knew throwing that at you, that would create a conversation of you going, oh, I can't possibly choose just one. <laughs> I knew I it. I can't. But because my actual favourite is uh, Macbeth. So I find that really interesting. Um, I totally agree with you that never seeing it completely done in a way that I go, that was just, I wanna, I've always seen it went, Maybe, maybe, and every time I went to another one, I've mm. went, oh, like, I've always wanted to see, I don't know if it's ever been done, you'll maybe know more than me about this, but I've always wanted to see Lady Macbeth done in drag, like, by a drag queen or drag artist. I think that... Oh, no, there's somebody who does that. Um, there. Have, have a Google, there's a drag, I haven't seen it, there is a drag queen, Lady Macbeth, out there. Um, who does it? I've seen, I've seen it around online, there is, there is one. But, the, but I really want to do, I've got a, a friend of mine that I work with on a film, then we really want to do like a swapped version with him as as Lady as Lady M and me as, as Macbeth. Wow. I really want to do that. That's interesting. Exciting, exciting. So we but, are, I mean, who knows if we'll ever do it, but that's, that is interesting. Yeah. We are looking at Hope during season three of Afternoon Delight. And it is the mm. last season of Afternoon Delight, so it feels great that I've got you on before it finishes. Um, mm. We are looking at hope. It can be what hope means to you. A lot of the guests tend to talk about one moment that things weren't great and hope got them through it. And I would love for you to share your answers. Mm. It's, again, it's interesting when you say one moment. I've been through a lot of challenging times and hope is hugely important to me. I can't comment on hope without looking at what we're all still going through now. Hope is 100% what's got me through that hope and the connection and everything we've spoken about with the show must go online and, and so on, and also just being in nature. But if I think back to, to that second divorce when I was trying to finish my MFA and I'd spent so many years building up my connection with the spirits of land in that place and knowing that I'd have to leave that home, that I would have to leave, um, I suppose, the luxury of the privilege that I'd been afforded there as well, mm. that I'd be out on my own as a single parent, desperate to hold on to this career in the arts that I'd already had to give up previously. So the idea of, of having to give that up a second time was just... I, can't, I don't know, what, I can't explain to you how devastating as a concept that was. The only thing that could keep me going and just making the work with no funding or anything is that hope that I was, that I had been right in my choices and that art would, that art was my purpose and that art would carry me through and just, you can't, 
You can't produce art from nothing without the hope and that light to sustain you that it will come to something. I feel like hope and faith are strangely intertwined in that way. Oh, yeah. Hope is a kind of faith, whatever you believe in or not. In order to hope, you have to think that something better yeah. is going to come. I totally agree. Um, there's, there's a, and I know that you wanted a, a, a quote, and again, I, I didn't want to choose more than... I, didn't, I couldn't choose one. So while we're talking about hope, uh, I always think about Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to think of a Shakespearean quote to do with hope because I do feel that Shakespeare plays take us to such dark places and then bring us out again. But it's much, strangely, it's much more easy to find nihilistic quotes in Shakespeare than it is to find hopeful quotes, even though the plays themselves are essentially hopeful. But then when you when Lord of the Rings is... From my whole life, Tolkien has been my favourite author and my favourite sort of of fiction and fantasy in that whole universe that Tolkien created is entirely about hope because he was writing in the darkest of times and, and created this fantasy world that was going through the darkest of times and always those characters manage to hold on to hope and and get through it. So whenever we as individuals or as as as, um, as countries or as, as a world are going through the darkest of times, I think that Tolkien uh, as as an an a religious, you know, as something that is not uh, that as a humanist kind of work offers us hope and there was there's something that goes around as a meme but there's a beautiful quote um which i will don't want to get wrong so i'm gonna bring it up um here the world is indeed full of peril and in it there are many dark places but still there is much that is fair And though in all lands love is now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. Wow. Beautiful. And that, that to me is what this last year has been about. That's, that's so apt. That's just so beautifully and eloquently put. Thank you so much for that. On a random, more positive note, I guess, um, what I guess, if I asked you, three performances that have been your favourite in your career so far, what would they be? The, the actual performances themselves? Yeah. Or the performances. production? Can be either or. I would say maybe the actual performances that were in the room, etc. but it's up to you, but top three in your whole career. I've had so I'm so lucky that I've had so many amazing experiences. Oh gosh, because I've met so many amazing people through them as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely um, taking Richard the Third. I mean, so that very first production of Richard, the very first performance of Richard the Third, that that I told you about, just so fundamental. And thinking back to that, and just like, damn, we did that. And then flicking forward then to like taking that to 
through St. Petersburg and, and to Pakistan. Um, and what, you know, essentially the same show and the response there, but just the, just the warmth and the love from people that we've been told politically are mm-hmm. opposed. And art, art unites everybody for that experience of being in St. Petersburg and performing there and in Pakistan. Oh, but gosh, I was, ah, because I've been lucky enough to perform on the Globe stage, of course. Wow. And so I have this, I have a deep love of that theater for the obvious reasons. But also magically, you know, that building, because they didn't have all of the... Um, I'm going off on a tangent now, is that No, right? you're not going to tangent. Talk it's all it. tangent. <laughs> because it's obviously it's a reconstruction, but they didn't have all the information that they needed to historically reconstruct it. So they took the historical principles of the, uh, of the sacred geometry and everything of the time and built it according to those principles. So what you're, what, it's really like a hermetic temple walking in. You've got the two pillars there. You've got the, um, you've got the uh, astrological symbols and you've got the planets above you and everything. So it's sort of magically set up to be a sacred space. So I always feel that energy when I'm there. So that first time performing, even though it wasn't like necessarily a professional performance, it was part of my MFA, performing Leontes in the Winter's Tale on the Globe stage and that moment of just being able to open the doors mm. and walk out and, ah! Oh, oh, the, these memories that time at the Globe was just like, mm. yeah. Um, and then I was also lucky enough um, to have done a one-off performance um, professionally at, at the Globe, which was, um, this is a crazy, like, small world connection. There was a birthday. It was like one of Shakespeare's birthday celebrations. Mm-hmm. And they wanted people who had previously played Hamlet, but they wanted a really diverse collection of people who had def- played Hamlet to come together and present a sort of family show of Hamlet with these different people who had played Hamlet before coming on to do different bits with interconnecting bits done by these two presenters. And I got picked to be the death scene, Hamlet, which was great. <laughs> and so I, in, and we did like four shows in the day or something and it was free for audiences, but it was, you know, to perform to like full house at the Globe was as Hamlet dying in Horatio's arms. And we had um, a kid come up to be Laertes that I would fight with a plastic sword. And then I got to die in, in, in Horatio's arms, sorry. And um, that was great. But the that same event, Sarah Peachy, so Rob's partner's co-producer of Show Must Go Online had baked this amazing globe cake. Wow. And, and we'd never met or anything, but we were both involved in this, um, in this event. I love the globe stage so much. It's brilliant. I love yeah. the world. That was, at le- that was at least three. It's free. I love it. You could honestly, Emily, it's been such an absolute delight having you on Afternoon Delight. Is there anything you would like to promote before we end the episode? I feel like we already have. Yeah. I've got so potent art coming out. <laughs> oh, what else have I got going on? Oh, yeah. So I've got, um, I know that your, your show is probably primarily like um, Edinburgh, Scot- Scotland based folk, but um, if anybody from Brighton is listening, then I have 
I have a show coming up at Brighton Fringe, um, which was due to be on last year, but for obvious reasons didn't happen and, and has was on the year before that as well. So it's called Quintessence, which is a solo show that I wrote originally for the, that's going to be another long run, but it's like, last words, another hour later, um, which I originally was commissioned by the London Science Museum to write as part of their Frankenstein Festival. And then it went on to Brighton Fringe and won the Outstanding Theatre Award at Brighton Fringe in 2019. And in that I play an AI being who has been programmed um, with the order to recreate humanity after humanity has wiped itself out. So it has this one command, humanity must thrive and the complete works of Shakespeare mm -hmm. as a guide to what the human spirit is. Mm -hmm. So it's set in the far future and you, the audience, are this new race of humans that have been created by the AI and the AI is explaining to you where you have come from and is interspersed with all these different mm -hmm. snippets from Shakespeare illustrating various points about humanity, mm -hmm. humanity's innate self-destructiveness, how can humanity thrive? And, mm -hmm. and there are various twists and turns in that. Oh, I can't wait. So I that's, can't wait. yeah. I'm definitely going to come see it. I know that me, Rachel, and Emily were looking at coming down together to see it. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah, you've got fans. <laughs> that is a long way. <laughs> I'm looking for oh. I love a journey. Obviously, we end Afternoon Delight with an inspiring quote from every guest. And I would love for you to share your quote before we finish. So, this is really, this is going back to the point I was making because your show is for artists and so the point where I was making where you're saying what's your advice to young artists and this it I feel like this voice is always with me and this is this is Bowie right David Bowie's advice never play to the gallery never work for other people in what you do always remember that the reason that you initially started working was that there was something inside yourself that you felt that if you could manifest in some way you would understand more about yourself and how you coexist with the rest of society. I think it's terribly dangerous for an artist to fulfill other people's expectations. Brilliant. Oh, I'm and yeah, so that that's that in terms of a quote that I carry with me, that I always hear that voice of advice with me, that's the one. Absolutely incredible. Oh, Emily, this has been such a joy and truly magical. Thank you so much for joining us on Afternoon Delight. Thank you so much. It really has been an absolute delight. I have to say, listening back to this interview and doing my outro spot, I couldn't actually quite fathom the fact that Emily Carding and I have so much in common. I'd obviously mentioned our upbringings, our attitudes to life, our spiritual um, parts of herself and how intertwined they were. But I think for me, primarily, it was the fact that they had said, I'm going to take all these horrible things that he said to me and I'm going to use that to make art, basically, which is so funny because that is literally what I have been doing this week, creating my first track to DJ and live sing as a musician. And I have to say... I have been writing a commission for the My Normality for the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival and I'm literally doing the exact same thing where I'm writing text about how a guy 
in season three of Afternoon Delight, my hope episode, you know, that guy that gave me that horrible text message that ruined my life and how I used that to now create impactful art. And I can't honestly say any more how inspiring Carding is and how much of an artist I truly admire because it's rare to find people that have the same mentality and the same method as you when it comes to these things. And I think there's so much there to treasure and I'm so pleased that they joined me for Afternoon Delight. I think looking back at the last three seasons, because this is the last season of Afternoon Delight, we've had such an eclectic array of talent from drag to actors, musicians, even a dietitian. You know, we've had everyone on Afternoon Delight, but it's really special to have someone who is the same as you, has the same outlook, gender identity-wise relates to you, but they're from an older generation because you do often in the non-binary community, and I know Alex, the dancer who came on, they had mentioned this, that you will get people that go, well, I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I had an interaction yesterday with one of my best friends in a cafe, um, a good interaction, where she had said, one of her um, siblings has kind of said to her, well, I don't really get it because they, them is plural. And I turned around and I went, do you know what? I've been saying this last two weeks. Here's a really good explanation. When someone says their pronouns are they, them, and you go, well, that's plural, that doesn't make sense, they've got more than one gender. They identify with both. There's two genders for them, or maybe more, and that's why it's plural. But it's so useful to have Carding, who is a little bit older than myself, um, talk about the fact that their generation very much, like David Bowie, George, Boy George, like Annie Lennox, you do often question why the older generation who spun and brought to life the new wave of artists and queer people who were different and the revolution of it, and then they go, I don't like that, it doesn't make sense. So Carding, thank you for being honestly a beacon of light and being an artist that really does encapsulate hope. You're incredible. I can't wait to come down south and see your show in person and get a wee drink and a wee boogie. You are honestly a delight. It's so exciting to then finish the weekend tomorrow with Rob Miles, the main man behind TSMGO, alongside his partner, Sarah Peachy, who brought together artists like myself, Emily Carding, and many more. So I can't wait to share that episode of all of you. He is honestly great, and he's going to be talking about what straight white men can do to also be an ally to the community. It's honestly brilliant. I'm signing off for the rest of the day now to write that uh, script for the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival. But until then, stay safe and as always, remember to breathe.